Don't give up on God. He won't give up on you. Keep the faith. thank the Lord for our praise team who did an awesome job this morning leading us into the presence of God, inviting the Spirit of the Lord here in our midst. We're so thankful to the gifts and the anointings that God has shared with us through them. We salute you, the body of GMFC, all those that are visitors, we salute you each and every one that is finding this a new place, a new station for which you have tuned in today. We salute you and we are thankful for you. Thankful for the musicians, the offering of their gifts to the Lord. We are so thankful to all the provision that God has granted us. We are living in unprecedented times. If humanity would take a pause for a minute and just begin to examine everything that is going on, you'll find that humanity seemingly as a whole is raging against a system, the system, many systems. We are fighting against theology this is not strange to the church, for the church has been fighting against theology or using theology as a means to war against each other. The world is fighting against perceived differences in our makeup. The world is in a constant battle. And on top of all the fighting that's going on, we're living in a day where it seems as if pandemics abound. We're still dealing with a second or third surge of the coronavirus, the COVID-19 crisis. It seems as if we're going on the wrong direction or in the wrong direction on the scales as is being released to us. Now there are conspiracy theorists that will argue even that. There are people who will believe this is just another means of control while there are others who have felt in reality the sting of this sickness. But it seems as if no matter what is going on, none of us can get on the same page. We're all fighting 
against each other. And what we don't really realize is the external fight is really a representation of something that is occurring on the inside of us. You see, the real war, the real fight, isn't external, it is internal. In fact, when I look at the life of Paul, and we're going to get to the foundational scripture for today, when I look at the, the, at the life of Paul and something that he said, I find that I, and I'll speak just for me, am a walking, talking, living, breathing contradiction. From the depth of my being, I'm entirely two different yet same beings at the same time who are both struggling for control of the same mind and that mind is in a war with itself to determine who I or who I is the victor. In fact, humanity as a whole is a paradoxical creation in that it is not self-representative of its creator, yet humanity bears the image of him who created it. Turn with me in the word of God to the book of Romans, the 7th chapter, the 15th through the 25th verse. The Lord took me here. We had a wonderful Bible study this past Tuesday. One of the questions posed in the Bible study was, is there good in everybody? And it kind of led me spiritually thinking down a path that brought me here this Sunday to this text. Romans, the 7th chapter, the 15th through the 25th verse. I'll be reading from the King James Version. And the Word of God reads as such. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, let me pause there. This is kind of where the conversation on Tuesday began to uh, take its fork in the road. And some of us have an inability to recognize that there are multiple parts that make up you and I. We are not just flesh. We are not just spirit. We are not just soul. We are not just mind. We are not just body. But we are mind, body, soul, and spirit. We are multiple things. Back to the text. For I know that in me, and Paul points out something very important, that is, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would do, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. 
I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Let me take a few moments to try to break down this paradoxical statement, this whole text, this 10 verses of Scripture that Paul is talking about. He's talking about a paradox or a contradiction that exists within the self-same being, something that is going on in you that wars against something else that is going on in you. Paul uh, starts this section of Scripture with a statement of identification. He establishes the fact that he is fleshly or carnal. We cannot, as believers, begin to think that after the knowledge of Christ, somehow our flesh is now removed from us. Or that now your flesh plays no part in how you're going to live your life. Paul starts out by identifying a fact that we as believers often forget about. He is fleshly or carnal. In the text, we find the Greek word sarkinos, and, and this word depicts an unspiritual creation of fleshly existence derived from an earthly inheritance gained through the regeneration of the seed of your parents rather than the seed of God. This word is also used to illustrate the sinful nature of humanity as a whole, something that we call to we call or refer to as the Adamic nature or the carnal nature of man. We also find another underlying institution of the characterization of carnality as describing the flesh as unregenerate and temporal. You often hear me say, stop trying to save your flesh. Your flesh cannot be saved. Your flesh is not what lives forever. So Paul then is describing himself at the onset onset as an unregenerate temporal being with a nature of sin or a standard of sin. And in these words, we find a truth we often deny. We, the people of God, are in a struggle for our very own standing in our very own mind. Identity is vital to the success in this life of every believer. Understanding who we are will open your mind to experience who you are in Christ. So Paul is beginning to identify a power that is working against his mind or his thoughts, his flesh and desires. Uh, Yet we will see another power that makes war against the power 
of his flesh. Second Peter 2 and 19 says, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. While oftentimes it seems like things in the world offer you freedom, when in actuality it's a contradiction or a paradox because the freedom it offers is actually bondage in another system. So Paul begins now to explain the struggle that he faces. And in this description, he uses the Greek word gnosko. And that word is translated as allow. And this is an extremely important word because it means to know or to understand or to perceive or to intellectually comprehend. There's a two-part interpretation of this word. First is the theory of knowing or comprehending a thing without having first experienced what it is you're trying to know. Second, it is seeing things as they truly are without deriving the knowledge of the thing from any opinion or set speculation. So Paul is identifying the lack of knowledge of the power that is pulling him towards sin. We find then that there is a pull in us that we do not fully understand. There is also a relational concept attached to this word that Paul uses. Because being in relationship with something opens your comprehension or understanding of the thing or the person with whom you are in relationship. I cannot understand you to the fullest unless I am in relationship with you. Because it is the relationship that opens up intimacy, and it is intimacy that opens up knowledge. People will go off the deep end doing uh, unthinkable things, and when the news finds out and they go to the scene to interview the neighbors and the family and the friends, you will often hear people testify that they never saw that thing coming from that person, or they couldn't believe that that person did whatever it was that that person did because their base, or they base their knowledge on the relationship that they had with that person. I can't believe he murdered her because my relationship did not reveal to me any murderous behavior or characteristic. So then when he commits this crime, it's a shock to me because it goes against the knowledge or the comprehension of relationship or the comprehension that I gained from our relationship. And here begins the paradox that exists in humanity. We desire to know and believe in the good of mankind, but we are overcome with the knowledge of the evil mankind engages in. The belief then becomes we accept there is good in everyone. And this is an acceptable standard by which we should view human nature, or is it? God has destined the fleshly nature of humanity to die. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. The fleshly 
nature is going to die. Whether it's through natural means or unnatural means in this present uh, dispensation of God in the earth, this period of grace, whether it be after, whether it be through the rapture prior to the coming uh, of the tribulation period, when you're caught up to meet God and the saints in the air, your flesh has to die. As a matter of fact, the knowledge of the believer is, is that you should be crucifying your flesh every day. Your flesh should actually be used to dying when really most of us, our flesh is used to living. You have to understand that when the unregenerate nature or this corruptible puts on incorruption or the regenerate nature of the creator, what takes place is an obliteration of the sin nature by the spirit nature of God. Sin exists in the fleshly nature of man. And the fleshly nature of man is going to be obliterated by the spirit nature of God. Galatians 5 and 17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. You see, the paradox of humanity then reveals an inadequacy of man's knowledge to escape his own nature. No matter how much you try to please God or follow God's command in your own knowledge or in your own power, let me make this point clear. You will fall short because the unrighteousness of your flesh will always pull you toward unrighteous things. You ought to look at your neighbor, shake the one laying next to you in the bed, and just tell him, you can't do this without God. You see, some of us think that we can be good without God. Some of us think that we can do good things without God. When in actuality, the nature of man will always pull man away from good things. To bring mankind out of contradiction or out of the paradox, humanity needs a force or a power that's not bound by the contradiction itself. In other words, you need something outside of you that is greater than you to help you overcome you. Humanity needs a power that's greater than the power that humanity is fighting against. No matter what resource or uh, faculties humanity uses and no matter how diligently mankind tries, it is unable to control sin and to keep from sinning in itself because sin is within our flesh. Sin dwells in your flesh. 
This is why your flesh cannot be saved. In fact, man is corrupt. And he dies because of his corruption. You were never made to be corruptible. God did not create you to die. He created you to live eternally with him. You were not created with the seed of corruption that causes you to age and to deteriorate. The seed planted in you was the seed of God, and the seed of God is life eternal. Adam allowed the seed that God planted in him to be corrupted by the seed of another. The seed or the corruption through sin then enters and it produces after its own kind. Every seed sown must reproduce after its own kind. If I sow destruction, if I plant seeds of deceit, these are the things that I should expect back. I cannot sow orange seeds and expect apples. I cannot sow apple seeds and expect oranges. The seed of a thing is in the thing. And it reproduces only that thing. When I sow a seed, it's going to reproduce after my kind. This is why most children look like their biological parents because the seed that was sown reproduces after its kind. My sons look like me because they are a product of the seed that was sown in the womb of their mother. They can't look like anybody else. When your children look absolutely like somebody else, red flags start coming up. Because I am a male, black, Hispanic. If I have an Asian baby and my wife is black and Italian, and I'm black and Puerto Rican, but my baby is Asian, something's wrong. Because Asian seed is not in me. That means that somebody else sowed seed to produce something after its own kind. I'm trying to put this in, in, in a manner in which you can understand. Uh, seeds do not reproduce after another kind. They reproduce after their kind. This seed or this corruption through sin is entered and it's, it reproduces after its kind. Romans 5 and 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and then death by sin and so death then passes upon all men for that all have sinned because we are all of the seed of Adam the seed of corruption was planted in our flesh in our body and life 
when Adam sinned. The carnal life proves that man cannot keep from sinning. That man is diseased with the seed of corruption, the seed of a sinful and depraved nature, the carnal nature, the human nature of man is always driven to chaos and sin. If you leave children to themselves, children often resort to mischief. If you don't cut your grass, grass will grow out of control. If you don't trim your trees, trees will overtake everything around them. Everything in creation, because of the corruption that has been sown into it, is affected by it and is driven to chaos. John 6 and 26, Jesus says this. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Titus 1 and 15, unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. You see, Paul makes a declaration that there is no good thing, not in you, there is no good thing in your flesh. There's no good thing in your flesh. And this is having to do with identity, not action. This is dealing with who you are, not so much what you do. The Greek word sarki, or sarkai, for uh, flesh points to the natural, not the spiritual existence of man. So Paul is then identifying not his spiritual estate, but his earthly estate. And Paul says he finds two laws or two powers within himself. And what are these forces doing? They are in a war against each other. The law of sin and evil battles the law of the inward man or the law of his mind. Now, the law of evil or the law of sin means that sin is a law. It's a rule. It's a power. It's a principle. It's a disposition. It's an urge. It's a tendency. It's a tug. It's a pull. It's depravity within the nature of man or the man's inner being. It is called a law by Paul. It's called a law because of its regularity. It rises up and it rules all the time. If you defeat sin today in your flesh, you still have to kill your flesh tomorrow because it's a rule that is regular in its nature and it always tries to establish dominance in your earthen life. It's a rule or it's a law because of its permanent and controlling power in your flesh. Because it is impossible to break its rule and to keep from sinning in your flesh. Because it has captivated and enslaved the carnal nature of man. And because it's not passive, but it's active. 
It's constantly struggling to gain the ascendancy over the law of the mind. Now, I know that there are some that believe I've come to the knowledge of Christ and I am delivered from sin and that you are. I am delivered from the power of sin and we're going to get into that here in a moment. But because you are delivered from the power of sin, you have to understand that sin is not yet completely defeated in your life. Sin is removed. I am no longer a sinner. In other words, I no longer am a slave to sin or one that is under the governship of sin. I have been translated into a new kingdom. I am not a sinner. I am the redeemed. Again, identity, not action. I'm the redeemed of the Lord. My identity is changed. And because my identity is changed, I'm governed by a new power. However, in this current life, until the coming of our Lord, the other life is still in existence. It's still trying to live. You know it is because you're often arguing with yourself about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. You're often fighting against yourself about that second look, about that extra plate about what you held back. You're often in this struggle. If your flesh was dead, there's no war in you. There's no struggle in you. There's nothing in you that will pull you away from God. The fact that we struggle in this life is a manifestation of the war that's going on inside of us. Now, we as believers, we understand the scripture, and the scripture says we ought to practice peace with all men, right? That means nobody in here gets into an argument with anybody else, right? We, we don't argue with nobody. We, 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 don't, we don't raise our voice and get mad because someone has a differing opinion. Right. We, we, we don't do that. We, we don't do that to our spouses or to our loved ones or, 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 or to our family. We, we don't ever have a moment where we have to go back to somebody and say, I'm sorry for. Right. Because because we, we're just full walking examples of the glory of God. No, we're struggling. We're not under the governorship of the urge however the urge still exists and sometimes some of us get ourselves into trouble because we pretend like it doesn't exist but Paul is very clear in the text and you got to understand something when God puts something in his word called the word of life it's probably something very important that we should pay attention to it's probably something that God is trying to tell us to indicate that hey we have not arrived yet. Don't act like you have because you haven't. You have not arrived. You are only what you are because of my grace. You can't do it without me. You need me. So don't get it twisted. There's a law that is in place. There is a power that is in place. Thanks be to God, it's not greater than the power of God. The problem comes is when man allows the law of sin to rule 
his life. When you allow sin to rule your life, you become victimized by the power that is set to destroy you. Because sin does what? It leads to death. All sin leads to destruction. So then the urge or the, the desire within yourself is not really, it, 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 it has a good propaganda program because typically your urge on the surface looks good, feels good, you think it, it's going to lead to good when in actuality at the end of it, most of the time, you feel messed up, you done messed somebody else up, or all kinds of other problems have now been introduced because of it. All sin leads to destruction and to death. Growing up, I remember asking my father, I wanted to do something, and he told me that I wasn't allowed to do that. And I said, well, what if I do it anyway? He said, the question then isn't, the question that you should ask isn't whether you do it anyway. The question that you should ask is, is it worth the consequence of doing it? Because we know what the consequence is. Death and destruction. Is that moment worth death and destruction? When the ultimate goal of the power that is urging you or pushing you away from God is not to make you better, it's only to destroy you because it sees the better that is in you because of the presence of God. The law of the inward man or the law of the mind means the divine nature of God that is implanted within the believer. We know that back in Genesis when God created all things, they were created with life. Uh, when he called the animals to be, they came to be with life. When he called nature into existence, it came into existence with life. The only thing that God created that did not have life was man. God created man, he formed man of the dust of the, of the ground, of the elements of the earth. He created him, he formed him, he called, caused all of this intricate uh, being to come into existence. Yet none of this lived until God implanted man with life. He breathed into the nostrils of man and the Bible declares that man then became a living soul. So outside of God, you're dead. You think you're alive, but in actuality, you're dead. And then everything you do outside of God leads to death. Or it leads to things that are not satisfying or the satisfaction of the thing that you do is not lasting. See, some of us outside of God live like the Lay's commercial. I can't just eat one. Because one Lay's chip really ain't satisfying. I got to eat two. And then two really ain't satisfying. I got to eat three. Well, I done got the three. I might as well eat the bag. And then I, I don't want a little bag. 
I want the family bag, but I don't want to share it with the family. You see where this is going, where it's building to, because the urge is always to destruction while you seem like you're really doing something that's benefiting yourself. You're satisfying something when in actuality you can't satisfy those urges. They will always want more. They will never be satisfied. But God sows into man, he implants into man his divine nature. This is what 2 Peter 1 and 4 says. It's important that you understand this because this relates to your identity. And when you don't know who you are, it becomes a lot easier to be bound by a law that you've been freed from. 2 Peter 1 and 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Lust, what is lust? It's an urge. Well, what's the power behind the urge? The power behind lust or the urge is sin. But we have the divine nature of God in us to escape that power or to have power in us to never be subject to the I could not help myself. Oftentimes, when you get caught or you're dealing with the consequences of your actions, you get to the place where you start to believe you couldn't help yourself. Another thing that we like to say is, my mouth moves faster than my brain can process. And before I'm done saying, I haven't even begun thinking about what it is I've said. The mouth has formed the words before my mind comprehended what I was saying. And we feel like we cannot control that. When in actuality, because of the inward nature of man being manipulated or controlled by the divine nature of God, there is a power in you to break the urge in you to do or to say or to behave in any manner that is contrary to the word of God. That power exists. A few weeks ago, we talked about the power of choice. We talked about how God granted unto every believer the ability to choose life or death, to choose. Life has no more power than death in the action of your choice. They, they are equal else you don't have a choice. So God is trying to get you to a place of understanding that not only is there a power that's working in you, in your flesh, to pull you away from God, there is a power that is in you that in actuality is greater than the power that's pulling you away from. However, he leaves the choice to you to choose which way you will go. Choose life or death. Choose righteousness or unrighteousness. The choice is yours. The power exists to go either way within the believer and within the non-believer. Everyone exercises the ability of free will. 
but to whom you yield your members is to whom you serve. So what does God do when he implants this divine nature? He imparts in man a new man. So we talk about the believer being regenerated uh, or, or born again in the spirit. We are, we are born again, made anew, made afresh. Ephesians 4, 23 and 24, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. When you come to the understanding of who you are in Christ, when your identity is regenerated, I know who I was in my flesh. I know who I was in my sin. But when I understand who I am in Christ, I understand then the deliverance from sin. As a matter of fact, I comprehend that God did not just take sin away from me in Jesus Christ. Jesus has become my sin, the Bible declares, so that I could become his righteousness. So the old man of sin is destroyed and the new man born after Jesus is a man of righteousness. Yet the flesh still exists. The flesh did not become new. I remember being a smart aleck little boy and hearing the old saints sing the song. I looked at my hands and they were new. I looked at my feet and they were too. And I'm looking at my fingers and they look the same to me. Look, my feet look the same. All the rest of me look the same. I didn't look any different. I didn't fully understand. And, and many times we as believers get to a place where we, we look at our hands and we say our hands were new when in actuality it's not the hand that's new. It's the power that controls what the hand does that is new. It, 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 it's the power that's working behind my mentality that's pushing me to function in my identity, understanding that my identity reproduces after its kind. then I do the things that I have become. Colossians 3 and 10. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge. I know who I am now versus who I was before knowledge came which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. God has opened my mind to understand my new identity in him. And because I understand my identity in Christ, I recognize then the war that exists in me. I now can understand why there's an urge in me to do that which is not convenient to do. But greater than understanding why it's there, I understand because of who I am that I can be delivered through the power of Christ dwelling in me from accomplishing what the urge is attempting to accomplish because I have the abiding presence of Christ in my life. What does John 14 and 18 says? It says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. 
Galatians 2 and 20 declares, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Understanding that my existence is housed in this fleshly cage, yet I am not bound as a prisoner to the cage my spirit is living in. I'm exercising the real freedom I have because of the gift of God that is in me. Because I have an indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this in John 14, 16 through 17, and I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. What does Paul also say in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 6, 19 through 20? He says, no, he says what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Exercise the servanthood of the man that's been renewed in the knowledge of Christ rather than the man who foreknew sin because of the seed of Adam. You are translated, the Bible declares, from death into life, which simply means you have transferred kingdoms. You're now a citizen of a new kingdom. The kingdom isn't something that's coming. The kingdom is here right now. You are citizens of a already existing kingdom. A kingdom that has all power. There's a famous civil rights leader that said, riot is the voice of the unheard. Many of us are raging on the inside of us and in actuality rioting against ourselves. What is a riot? A riot is an act of utter destruction because it feels like we're not being heard. The Spirit of God is trying to get us to a place of understanding that the gift of knowledge is in you because of the indwelling presence of God. I'm a firm believer that God gave to man the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, in the church of old, we, we did what? We would labor for the gift. We would have services where you came and they'd have the chairs in the front of the altar and you would uh, be called to come, kneel, and the old church mothers and, and, and ministry would come and, 
they would just tell you to start praying and they tell you you ain't got it yet and you be crying and you be snotting and, and your knees be hurting and you be hubba, 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 hubba. And they, no, you ain't got it yet. Keep tearing, keep tearing. You are laboring for the gift. If I got to work for it, it ain't a gift. Why do I work for something that is given? When something is given to me, all I need to do is receive what has been given. God has poured his spirit out. Why? Because absent the indwelling power and presence of God in your life, you cannot be free from the power of sin and death that is living in your flesh. God is not going to make you labor for your deliverance because most of us wouldn't get there. Some of us have been in church long enough, we know how to fake the funk. We know how to look saved on the outside. Some of us are gifted. We, 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 we are gifted to sing. We're gifted to play. We're gifted to uh, be an orator. We, we, we have these giftings that make it look like we are something that we're not. But this is the wonderful thing about God. God is that I'm not coming after those who look like. I'm coming for those who have a heart change. He's looking for those who have been reconditioned. You see, I had a heart transplant. God took the corrupt heart that was in me out and he put a heart after himself back in. I am a heart transplant survivor. And when God comes back, he's looking for the heart or at the heart of man because it's in the heart of man what, is the, what does the Bible declare about the heart of man before the knowledge of God? It's wicked, and no man can know it. He doesn't just work on your heart. He cuts that bad boy out and puts his heart in you. God plants himself in you. He gives you the gift of the Holy Ghost. We're so caught up in the speaking of tongues and all these different things. And the speaking of tongues is just a manifestation of what God has planted in you. That's all it is. It's just a sign of what exists in you. It is not the determinator of the existence of God in you. It's just a sign of what God has planted in you. God gives it. He poured it out as a gift because absent God, you can't do it. You need God. You didn't find God. God found you. Most of you weren't even looking for God when God found you. Most of you are like Paul. You was on the road to mess some stuff up. And that's when God found you and began to talk to you and pour his spirit 
out upon you. And then a change took place. A change. We refer to this change as the hidden man of the heart. First Peter 3 and 4. But let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. Very simply, let me close with this. Very simply, the law of the inward man is the law or the rule or the urge or the pull or the tug of the Holy Ghost to please God and to delight in doing the will of God. So the confession of Paul then is striking. He then declares that the law of sin wars against the law of his mind and that it gains the ascendancy. The law of sin captivates and enslaves him. So Paul then becomes desperate and he begins to identify himself as a wretched man who needs a deliverer. Well, thanks be to God that there is a sense in which man is a walking civil war. He has the ability to see what is good, but is unable to do the very good that he sees. He can, he can see what is wrong, but he finds that he can't keep from doing what he knows is wrong. Paul says he was pulled in two directions at the same time. Pulled so much that he was almost like two men in the same body. He knew the right, yet he did the wrong. He knew what was wrong, yet he was unable to stay away from it. There is no believer, no matter how advanced in holiness you become, who cannot use the same language that the Apostle Paul uses. There is a bondage, a power of sin within the believer's carnal nature that he cannot totally resist without the presence of God. You may struggle against the power against the desire, you may want to be free from it, but despite everything you do, you will find yourself still under its influence. Still under its influence. And this is precisely the bondage of sin, of coming short of the glory of God. And too often, find ourselves distrusting God being hard of heart, loving the things of the world, loving the things of self, being prideful, being cold, being slothful, being stingy, disapproving of the things that we know to be right and approving of the things that we hate. We groan under the weight of sin of being short of God's glory and of falling to or failing to be conformed to the image of Christ. In us aches a desire to walk in humility and meekness and to be filled with the fruit of love, joy, and peace. But day by day, we find the force of sin trying to reassert its power over our lives. And because of this, we struggle. We fight against it. We find that we cannot find the power to free ourselves in ourselves. Sometimes the believer senses in utter being in a place of utter helplessness and longing for God to free him because he is a slave looking and longing for liberty. This is what Martin Luther says. He said that this conflict between the flesh and the spirit 
continues in us so long as we live in some more and in others less, according as the one or the other principle is the stronger. Yet the whole man is both flesh and spirit and contends with himself until he is completely spiritual. This fight is going to exist until your flesh is removed. No, I'm not a sinner. I'm the redeemed of the Lord. However, because I'm the redeemed of the Lord does not mean that my fight against sin is over. While my flesh liveth, I have to understand the necessity to war against its desires. There was this movie, I can't think of the name of the movie, but the, the idea behind the movie was they had these police officers that they would send out to arrest you before you committed crime. Because these other people could see into your life the crime you were going to commit. So the police would come get you before the crime was committed and lock you away to re-educate your mind so that when you came out of this re-education center, you would no longer have the desire to commit the crime that you were arrested for that you never did. Can't think of the name of the movie, but it was a popular movie. Very popular movie. Um, can't even think of the, it was one of the more famous actors. I can't think of his name right now, but, um, but the idea was to get you before you committed the crime. Well, there's some biblical, spiritual attention that should be placed on that idea. The presence of God in you imprisons or captivates or fights against any thought in your flesh to pull you away from doing the will of God. That's the power that's working in you. It's not that you don't have urges anymore. Now, the church for years will beat you up for having an urge. As a matter of fact, some of, uh, uh, of the old-fashioned you know, style of, of religion would cause women to dress a certain way because they didn't want anyone to get an urge. They made sure that anyone sitting on the front row wasn't wearing short skirts and you know, revealing outfits and makeup and all these different things because they didn't want the pastor or the preacher to get an urge. They were fighting to prevent the urge from happening. <laughs> Saints, I'm here to tell you, urges are going to come because you're still living in the flesh. And your flesh has a propensity, a proclivity, a law that's governing it to do everything it can, not only to live, but to live in contradiction to the law of God in you. Don't get twisted over the urge. Recognize you have power in you over the urge. 
to not fulfill the urge. I don't complete the mission of my flesh. I complete the mission of the indwelling presence of God in my life. It's not the urge that makes you sin or that, or that causes you to be a sinner. It's the fulfillment of that thing. Your flesh, until it's removed, is always going to be enmity against you and God. It does not like the things of God. And you're going to deal with these things. This is why I constantly teach, be careful what you influence yourself with. Be careful what you watch. Because the things you watch, the things you read, the things you listen to will feed one thing or another. If you're an angry person, if that's the sin that is in you, the Bible says be angry but sin not. So that tells me that you can be angry and still not sin. However, you can be angry and also sin because it says be angry but sin not. That tells me that there is the possibility of, of sin being revealed in your anger. You're an angry person. You watch and listen to only angry things. What do you think is going to happen if every seed reproduces after its kind? If you're constantly sowing into yourself angry stuff, what do you think you're going to do? You're going to do some angry stuff. If you've got a problem with self-control and you're always feeding yourself things that justify satisfying yourself, you're going to fall prey and be victimized by a power that wants you to lose control and then do the things which are not convenient. Or as Paul says, find yourself doing the things that you know you should not do. But in the life of every believer, there is the indwelling presence and power of God to steer you toward him. But at the end of the day, the ultimate choice is yours. And I would be remiss if I did not tell you that the ultimate choice is yours. If I did not point out to you the necessity for you to make the choice, because if you don't make the choice, the carnal nature of man will take over. And you will find yourself living as you ought not to live. But God blessed you. He removed the sin condition or the condemnation that is connected to the condition. He removed you from the judgment against these things because of your identity in him. But you cannot pretend as if that nature is now gone. You have to be cognizant of the presence of the enemy in your life. And the moment you are, the war will be different. You'll find yourself winning more than you're losing. You'll find yourself not having to say, I'm sorry. We know that repentance is not... It doesn't have anything to do with being sorry. Repentance is, is about turning from behavior that's contradictory to your faith 
That's repentance. But you often find you do things that are sinful, and because sin leads to destruction, you're typically destroying relationships with people. So you find yourself constantly having to tell people, I'm sorry. When you understand your identity in Christ, you'll find yourself less having to tell people you're sorry. Because you understand who you are, and because you understand who you are, you understand the power that is in you, and because you understand the power that is in you, you know you have power to say no. Nike wants you to just do it. Jesus says, just say no. The world wants you to just do it. Jesus says, say no. People of God, you have to understand, after the knowledge of God, you've become a new creation. The old man is passed away, and a new man is now alive. But the old man is one of those men that's hard to kill. He doesn't want to stay gone. So he's like a zombie. He keeps trying to resurrect himself. You do everything you can to kill him, and he's back. You hit him with everything you got, and he's back. Don't be frustrated. The Bible says don't get weary in well-doing because if you don't faint, you shall reap a tremendous reward. Victory is assured for you in Christ. You will always be victorious over the enemy of your, of your faith, which is typically revealed in your flesh. You can always be victorious because greater is he that is in you than he that motivates your flesh or he that is in the world. You can always be victorious. However, you can't be victorious if there ain't no fight. I have to triumph over something to be called triumphant. If I'm not fighting, I'm not triumphant. I'm not a victor because I haven't engaged in combat. And we, we, we misunderstand our victory in Christ means that there is a battle for which we are sure to win. But it does not negate the existence of the battle. But we get frustrated when the battle comes and don't realize we've already been given the power to be victorious in the fight so we can defeat our enemy before we ever get in the ring. If we understand who we are. If we understand who we are. Lastly, I've watched much boxing in my life. I like boxing. Anyone that knows anything about boxing history, prior to Mike Tyson's loss, people lost before he ever got in the ring. They lost before the weigh-in. Because Mike was crazy. 
I don't know if any of you know Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. are uh, preparing to fight each other in, you know, some, you know, match. And you, you listened, I, I've listened to some of the articles and I've listened to Mike Tyson talk about himself and he, he talks about himself as if he's two different people. He says, there's a part of me that says this. And then there's another part of me that says this. Divided, crazy. And, and, and anyone that knows Mike Tyson would, would tell you, Mike, Mike's crazy. He, 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 some folks you just need to leave alone. Let some folks who's retired stay retired. But people would beat him before, or they would lose before they even got in the ring to fight him. Until he ran into somebody who recognized who he was. And then when he got into the fight and he got hit, he realized he could recover. When he got knocked down, he realized, wait a minute, I can get up. And he got up. And we know the rest. You've got to understand, God never said he was going to remove the fight. He said he was going to make you victorious in it. He never said he was going to remove your trouble. He said, I'll be there with you while you go through it so that you can be victorious when you come out of it. We keep acting as if nothing should ever go wrong or that we should never be tempted of anything. When God said, none of that stuff is gone. I've just implanted in you a surefire way to victory. What you do with that information is up to you. What you do with that knowledge is up to you. You either use it for your benefit, or you fall prey to the desires of your flesh, which lead to your destruction. Crucify your flesh. What we see going on in the world, the inability for the world to even come together on anything, even people that are protesting and rioting are not protesting and rioting for the same reasons or trying to accomplish the same things. They're not even unified in that. Because the real fight isn't outside of them the real fight is within them and they're constantly kicking their own behinds. God bless you. Thank you for being here with me today. Elder. Amen. Amen. Let's celebrate the word. And the messenger of the word this morning. Amen. Is there anything good in the house this morning? <laughs>